0: Or tell that person in high school how much you like them. Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decision or moment changed the course of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too.
0: Dr. Hilary is a GP, author and medical broadcaster who has been on our screens for 32 years as ITV's health editor on shows such as TVAM and Good Morning Britain. He is the UK's most well-known and trusted GP and his TV broadcasts have seen him cover groundbreaking medical news stories, not at home but internationally. Hilary qualified at the Royal Free Hospital in 1976 and has had an extensive and varied medical career. He has reported on the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti, launched vaccines in Sierra Leone and much more, as well as being involved with countless public health campaigns in countries such as China and Brazil. He continues to work part-time in general practice and in public health and believes that exercise, love and laughter remain the best medicines of all. He was awarded an MBE in October 2020 for his services to public health, medical broadcasting and charity work. He lives in London with his wife, Dee, and has five children and two stepchildren, and has just written his first novel, Frontline, the sweeping World War I drama that deserves to be read, according to Geoffrey Archer. With myself and most people feeling like Dr. Hillary has been a trusted and caring part of our lives for so long, I'm really looking forward to chatting to him all about his amazing career and moments that have led him to where he is today. So welcome to Sliding Doors, Dr. Hillary. Thank you, Jenny. It's really lovely to have you here and I promise I'm not going to bombard you with questions and we can just have a nice chat. And I mentioned there you have built such a trust um, and connection with your viewers over the years and I feel like you you really humanise the profession of medicine. But I guess I wanted to ask, is it hard sometimes because people just see you as Dr. Hillary and sometimes you're like, I am also Hillary on the side as well?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I think everyone has got um, lots of different facets to them, um, to their to their skills and their knowledge and their personalities. And, you know, I, I really don't like the idea of people being pigeonholed as one thing. So we can all do lots of different things. And I think it's important that we do, uh, that we're sort of a jack of all trades rather than master of just one. So um, uh, those people who who don't know me um, personally see me as as a medic, which is fine. Um, but I, I hope i'm i'm more than that i hope i'm a, a, a human being and a, a, a father um, a husband uh, you know someone who's interested in lots of different things so writing sport uh, theater cinema music and all of those things as well
0: And do your friends kind of let you have some time off when you're around them and they don't just ask you all about the medical ailments?
1: Oh, no, I don't let them. Um, (laughs) I might pick their brains about what they do. But uh, no, I'm I'm just their mate to them. Uh, And we can talk about all sorts of other things. I I don't like to to talk shop too much with uh, my medical friends. So um, I think when we've got spare time, we're just like everybody else and we have fun.
0: That's good because my sister's a GP and I know that she just likes to have time off, especially when she's just around the family and wants to be herself. So I think the profession's changed a lot, especially with what we've been through in the past 18 months. What do you think really makes a good doctor? Because I feel like you've got a really brilliant story behind how you became a doctor, but what, what do you think makes a good doctor?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, a, a good doctor is someone who can listen to their patient, who who listens intently and cares about what they're saying. Um, that's the very first step, um, listening. And 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 for some people, just being heard is part of the solution. So, you know, you can be the brainiest, most academic doctor in the world, but if you're not interested in what the person's got to say, um, that person's going to pick up on that and and not have faith in that doctor. So I think listening is really important. Um, Hippocrates always said, listen to the patient and eventually they'll tell you what the diagnosis is themselves. So talk about their experience, their, their history. What is it they've come to see you about? Is it really the thing that, that they're talking about? Or is there something else which they haven't yet got to, but they're a little bit anxious about bringing up um, a, a deeper fear than the one they're presenting with? So I think listening, first of all, I think that's a really important quality. I think caring and being empathetic, putting yourself in the patient's shoes is really important. What must it feel like to be like them, to be in a situation that they're in? And how would you treat this person if it was your mum or or, or your wife or your friend or your son or your daughter? So I think empathy is really important. So listening and empathy. And then I think there is um, a a need for knowledge and experience. So what they've presented with, how are we going to investigate this? What's the most important thing? Are we going to do an examination first? uh, Are we going to go straight to x-rays and tests? No, you're going to do the examination first because... Tests are impersonal. um, They don't have experience. They're expensive. They may not be necessary. Examine first, um, then carry out the simpler tests uh, in priority, uh, and then you you go on to the more um, involved and invasive tests. And that way you're doing things rationally and logically. But I think a good doctor has knowledge, um, experience, um, patience, care, empathy, and is prepared to listen. And if you can put all of that, and a sense of humor, I think, is really important as well. I I pride myself on being able to use humor in the surgery, listening to what the patient says, and if they have a joke with me, that's great. Humor is a great way of breaking the ice, but you never laugh at somebody, you laugh with them. Um, And if you can make fun of a situation, you can sometimes get to difficult or embarrassing um, uh, conditions without any need to um to worry about the language that's used. So I think um listening and empathy and um and that rapport that you establish with the patient in a doctor patient relationship is really important.
0: Yeah, because it's just like building a friendship as in you know you as you say you want to have that humor, you want to be relatable. And I think what I love about the you know being a doctor is there's a there's kind of something that suits all. So, you know, if you want to be a GP and be someone that wants to connect with people and spend more time with the same people, you can. If you're someone that just loves the thrill of trauma and you go and work in A&E, and I think, you know, as you say, I think and your your personality can suit different parts of the profession.
1: Absolutely. Um, so in general practice, we we have the privilege of being able to get to know patients better. Not so much these days. Um, it, it has become less personal. A lot of GPs don't have personal lists of, of people that are on their panel, if you like. Um, and so people sometimes don't see the same doctor twice. And I think that's a shame. There was a report out in the newspapers just today saying that uh, doctors who see their patients all the time, uh, in other words, who are on their personal list, tend to get better results because you're not starting from scratch every time with a new doctor. So I think um, personal. Um, getting to know your patients is really important. Um, sometimes a fresh um, pair of eyes on a, on a situation is useful. You can invite that, doesn't exclude that. But I think getting to know people is really well. You get to know how they tick and what their job is and where they live. All of that is relevant. So, yeah, I, I think... Um, gp a gp has that ability to see a patient every day if they need to to see the evolution of a condition whereas uh, you know maybe in primary in in secondary care in hospitals um you might only see that patient once um or 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 or, or, um, not for a very lengthy period of time in many instances for me a gp is a jack of all trades you never know what's what someone's gonna come bring through the door um, a specialist you could say is someone who knows more and more about less and less until they become experts in in nothing um but <laughs> they know everything about me. but you know uh, for me um I think people um I, I'm a people person, and getting to know people in the surgery um was what I wanted to do,
0: yeah, and it's so great, and I think that, as you say, I think it is changing a lot these days, and you know you don't see the same doctor all the time, but I guess the past 18 months has been part of the reason of why that's happened. I mean, this might be a bit of a loaded question for you, but how has the past 18 months been for you? Because you've been at the forefront of everything. You've you've been someone that we've all lent to, to kind of get us through, to help us understand things. But how have you, how has it kind of changed your life in the past 18 months?
1: Well, this has been the biggest medical story um, that I've had to cover in in thirty five years of of medical media. Um, so, in one way, it's been extremely challenging and stimulating and exciting. Um, but the downside is that this is a, a very nasty virus which has swept the globe and will continue to to um, cause difficulty for for some considerable time. So, professionally speaking, it's been immense. Um, the downside is that um, it, it's it's kept me very busy. Um, so I I keep across all the data and the science that is bombarding our uh, our screens all the time, and it, and there's new new stuff coming in every day. Trying to get a balance right, put things in perspective. You don't want to scare people, but you don't want people to be too complacent either. Getting that balance is what I try and do to the best of my ability giving people information which empowers them to do the right things that keeps them safe and keeps other people safe. And of course, what I say doesn't always please everybody. Um, you know, the aviation industry is on its knees and it and and clearly they want to things to get back to normal, but we can't yet get back to normal. Um, you know, the, the situation in schools is challenging, and we can make adjustments that makes it that, that mitigates it all. We can get people working in hybrid situations, so they're working from home some days of the week and they're going into work on the other days of the week. We can minimise our contacts in mass gatherings. We can ventilate our houses so that um, we are as near to working out, being outside as possible. All these things remain important because we've got more cases um, in the UK right now, only second to the US, um, and and 35,000 cases a day. So we still need to be cautious.
0: Yeah. And have you learned anything about yourself that you didn't know over the past 18 months?
1: Oh, I, I think that um, I'm I'm still um, able to you know to put in long hours. Um, uh, so my day starts at 4 a.m. Um, and sometimes it finishes at 11 p.m. Um, and I, I people ask me, do you sleep in the day? And I don't because it just makes me feel grumpy. <laughs> so I don't. Um, but, but instead of having a kip after lunch, I find I can go for a run with the dog, or I, I can go to the gym. And for me, that's a substitute for, for sleep in the afternoon. And then I seem to get a better quality of sleep at night. I might not get a lot of sleep at night, but I sleep soundly and that seems to be refreshing enough. Um, and so I've learned that I, I've still got some stamina um, uh, for work um, and I never, I've never i not uh, forsaken seeing my family and, and my friends um, to to unwind with. I think that is important for everybody, especially for their mental health.
0: Definitely. And I think we've all learned so many things about ourselves and especially now going back into the world where, I don't know, I'm definitely learning kind of what life means to me, but also the pace of life that I want to live. Um, so we're going to talk about your moments in a bit and like all about how you became a doctor, but I kind of wanted to ask you. So Do you believe that you're meant to be where you are now? Do you believe that you were kind of put on this earth to be Dr. Hillary, to help people or that you're meant to be on the path that you're on? That whole sliding doors concept, do you believe in fate and coincidence or do you think it's all kind of written for us?
1: no, I, I, I think, um I think there is a, a sort of destiny um that that um, uh, that shapes where we where we go in life. And you know there, there's certain things that happen to me over the course of time, but but um, I think I was always made to be where I am now. It, it it seems to fit so well with who I am um, and and, um, and uh, what I've learned over the years, the people I've met. Um, I can't imagine really having done anything else. There are lots of things that, that take my fancy. I mean, I'd love to have been a cartoonist. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a cartoonist, I think they're so clever with one drawing and one caption can sum up a whole situation. Um, and and uh, I would have loved to have been able to draw. I can't draw at all as it happened can tell a joke uh, and I'm not going to, but, um, you know, I think um, there are things I could have done. I I went to school, we'll maybe talk about this in a minute, with, with people like Mel Smith, the late Mel Smith. Um, Hugh Grant went to my school. Um, we pranced about on the stage a little bit. Uh, you know, I I could possibly have been, you know, a, a, an actor. But, you know, I went down this route and I think it was, it, I went down this route for a purpose because I, I, I like people on the whole. Yeah, I, I think probably it was fate that got me where I am now.
0: Yeah, and I definitely think most people across the UK are very thankful that you're on this path because you've helped and kind of connected with so many people and helped us all through stuff. We'll start with your moments Um, and as I said it's they're really interesting because I think they really kind of paint this brilliant picture of how you got to where you did today. So your first one is your best friend died from leukemia at age 15 and therefore you wanted to make a difference to people's lives. So this is a real like heartbreaking thing to go through at such a young age and actually it's such one honour of like a legacy to kind of leave for your friend of how many people you've actually managed to help from this so do you kind of remember the moment you found out your friend was ill and kind of that whole time for you
1: yeah uh, his name was Tom Sunderland and and, um, I have a wonderful picture of of him and I pushing a a massive snowball across the rugby field um with with our school blazers and and scarves and uh, wraps around our neck um and uh, you know I can picture his face very clearly even today um and And the next thing I knew was that he'd he um, he he was absent from school. um and then we broke up for um a holiday, a school holiday. um and and i was I, I was told by my mum one day that Tom had died. um and i I hadn't really understood how ill he he'd been. um And I remember crying on my bed um about the loss of my friend. And I thought, you know that life is so cruel sometimes. and and uh, I wanted to to understand what leukemia was and and why people got cancers. And although it didn't, it didn't change my life there. And then in terms, I didn't say immediately I'm going to be, I want to be a doctor like some people do at the age of nine or 10. Um, But it made me think, it made me think about, these random and and cruel occurrences and and certainly put things in perspective a little bit for me. Um, But I never forgot it. And and I think at that moment, I, I wanted to be kinder to people. I wanted to cherish life. And I wanted to make a difference down the line in some shape or form.
0: Yeah. And did you feel like it also gave you a push to understand the disease? Because I guess a lot of the medical word is understanding why it happened. And did it give you that drive to want to look more into, I guess, how our bodies work?
1: Not at that point. I was always interested in in uh, the human body and and how the body works. So you know, O level biology was was interesting for me. If you took away the plants, I, I didn't really want to study um, plants and and um, you know that part of it. But but the human body fascinated me. Um, so I, I and I remember reading in in French um, La Peste, um, which was Albert Camus' book The Plague. And I, and I read about the plague um, as an allegory for, for Nazi Germany. And, and I thought, wow, you know, this is this is, this is amazing, the, the plague. And then I read about the, the Black Plague and how it cuts swathed through society and killed thousands of people. And I suppose I've always had an interest in disease and health and it was later that i harnessed that into a medical career.
0: Yeah, and it's so brilliant. And i think that, you know, it's it is really hard to go through loss at such a young age. And do you think that affected how you deal with loss now and like how you can like empathize with your patients?
1: Yeah, i i mean i i i understand um bereavement and and, and what people go through when they lose somebody dear to them one of the best house jobs i did was was an oncology ward at the royal free hospital and and uh, it it was it was on the cancer ward that i spent a lot of time sitting on the patient's bedside and um talking to them about their what they were going through um talking to their families um sharing a joke of course sometimes um and, and um, you know, that's what patients appreciate, I think, sometimes more than anything, more than the treatment is, is that the nursing staff and the doctors really care about them as people. So I learned a lot about that. And I, I took all that experience into general practice so that when bereavement happened um, uh, that touched my patients, I could I could help them. I could talk to them. I could um, help people who were stuck in, in pathological bereavement um, and help them move on. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a really important aspect of medicine. It's not just looking after the, the living, but dealing with those people who are uh, uh, left and
0: with loss as well. I mean, I saw doctors as just being like, like superhuman people that could just fix everything. And actually you're human as well. And I, I think that the way you can help people through things by talking about your experiences and knowing what you've been through. I know you're also from kind of a big family yourself. Were there any medics in your family growing up? Yeah, my dad. My dad
1: was a GP. um, And it was because of his workload that that initially I I didn't consider a medical career. I mean, he he was on call every day um, uh, and most nights. And the telephone was always ringing um, at home from patients wanting to, to get medical care. So I thought, well, I, I don't fancy working that hard. I, I mean, I wanted to be a beach bum at the age of sixteen, like everybody else. And uh, um, so, my dad was um, uh, was was a doctor, and, and his I think his patients really admired him. He worked very hard. In, in fact, uh, we didn't see much of him because he worked so hard. Um, and I and I one thing I have done differently to him is that I, I've certainly spent more time with my kids than he was able to do. Um, And, you know, I I think every doctor has to have a life as well. Uh, and, And currently they're working really, really hard and they need more praise for what they're doing. Yeah,
0: definitely. And, you know, I think it's such a lovely thought to think about your friend because although it wasn't kind of the moment then and there that you decided, you still remember it as being a trigger. And we speak about this on the podcast a lot that out of kind of times of loss can come those breakthrough moments where you've gone on to help so many people through your career. So it's so brilliant
1: and it's ex- what's extraordinary is that um i i spent um 6 months working on a leukemia ward um again at the royal Free. so um you know tom who knows that you know that that the loss of tom um it, it, as my best mate um may well have sent me down that path e- even unconsciously but I, I i was working on um a ward where patients had uh, lymphoma and leukemia and it was intense it was you know um giving them the intravenous Drips. Uh, in those days, you know, the doctor would draw up the the, the drugs themselves and administer the drips. So we would do um, lumbar punctures and uh, and administer medicines that way. Um, we, we would have to treat their anemia, their infections, um, and sometimes in isolation rooms. And, um, you know, perhaps my, you know, my experience with Tom, you know, pushed me down that path. But it seems ironic otherwise that I ended up there.
0: Lovely to think that that is all connected. Um, And again, that's why I love talking about these moments that we can really reflect. Back on and how they connect to our lives. Um, so your second moment, I'm really excited to chat about this one because I think it has some really like hidden treasures in it. So choosing arts A levels instead of science before studying medicine made me a better communicator. So I think we've spoken a lot about how, you know, it isn't just about being academic, being a doctor, you've got to have that kind of communicator side to you. So Going back, what kind of were you interested in art? Like, were you just not? Re- were you academic when you were younger? Kind of, what made you go on that path earlier on?
1: No, I, I was. I was not particularly academic. Um, you know, as I say, at sixteen, I wanted to be a beach bum and and and, and have fun. And what, what was much more fun at school was the drama society um, and, and 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 reading. English books and and uh, uh, and um, you know studying sort of history and and a bit of French and um, so science was was not really a biology I liked as I say I liked the human biology um, but physics and chemistry didn't grab me um, and so the drama society was great we we as I say the late Mel Smith played full staff to my um, Henry Prince Hal in Henry the Fourth Part One. We, we did it really professionally. So when, when I had a sword fight with Percy in the play, um, we used real um, cast iron swords. And on one night, sparks actually flew off the swords and everybody sort of gasped. And um, it, it was only a brief um, uh, exchange of, of sword play, but uh, it was quite dramatic. And we did Oh, What a Lovely War and we did um, uh, all, all sorts of other productions that I really love doing. Um, so maybe that 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 made me feel like I, I wanted to have a stage, I suppose. Um, and in general practice, I realised I could talk to one person at a time, um, but in the media, I can reach hundreds of thousands. Um, so in a way, it's a stage, it's a platform, and a responsibility. Um, but yeah, back in school, it, it, won, it was going to be arts O levels um, and arts A levels. I did English history and French for A level. And then I thought, OK, I've enjoyed that. Now what am I going to do?
0: I know it is. It's true, because I think a lot of time at school, when you are into art and the creative side of stuff, it is like, what do you do next?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, funny enough, I, I, when I went to um, for my uh, interviews um, to, to go to medical school, <laughs> I remember one interview where the, the, there, were, there were five doctors on the panel and the, the professor, who, who was the main man, challenged me and said, "Oh, well, you know, why would reading Dickens he said quite disdainfully, "Why would reading Charles Dickens you know it possibly qualify you to come to medical school?" And I, and I was, I was, I think the um, the courage of youth, I just said, well, professor, I'm surprised you asked me that because all of human life is in a Dickens novel. So, it, you know, in Bleak House, you've got this, you've got that, you've got the socioeconomic deprivation, which causes ill health. You've got disease that's rampant in deprived parts of London where there's no sanitation. How can you even ask me this question? And he, I could see him going red in the face with anger because I was answering him back. But the other four doctors were going, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Absolutely. So I was offered the lowest grades possible to get into medical school. Um, uh, 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 for, I don't know, for that reason, possibly, but uh, I, that's how I, I, I got into medical school, really.
0: It's so funny. You remind me of when I interviewed to get into high school. Um, I was sat around a table with the headmistress and she asked, um, what does everyone watch on TV? And everyone was saying all these really academic programs. And I said, I love Coronation Street. And. I remember my mum afterwards being like, oh my gosh. But she was like, you know what? You said what you wanted and I got in because I was being normal. What kind of nine-year-old watches like documentaries on all of these history things? It just isn't true. So I love that. And, and I think as well, there is a lot of pressure becoming a doctor. And I think that, do you think it's really important that people can know that, you know, you don't have to go through the kind of, you know, the academic path or the path where you just kind of have to do this or do this, become a doctor. I, I love your story because it shows that there are other ways to to get into the profession.
1: Of course, there are. And these days, it's a lot easier. This is so in my day, you needed three science A levels. I had to do a conversion course and do those three science A levels in a year, which I hated. Um, I, I just had to parrot learn it. I didn't understand why I had to parrot learn it, because I couldn't see how relevant it was going to be for a medical career. And it hasn't been. Um, nevertheless, I, I stuck by it. And, and I got through that year, which was the hardest year. Um, and, um, you know, it's changed. So these days, you just need chemistry just chemistry A-level and, and two others. And I think that's great because, um, you know, w- once you can understand the basic chemistry, you, you can always add the the, the, the rest later. Um, and if you you could go down different routes in medicine, you can become a pathologist, you can become a, someone who looks down a microscope, you can become a researcher, you can become, you know, a surgeon, GP, psychiatrist. There are so many different routes requiring different skills. So, yeah, um, I, I think you can go in with your your, your chemistry A-level, or you can come to the subject later when you've already got a different degree. So you can come in as a mature student thinking, well, I've done this degree, but it's it's not really gonna get me anywhere or it's not got me to where I want to be. I actually fancy a career in medicine. Um, and, and despite a career in medicine being really tough these days, um, with a lot of demoralized people um and people who are thinking of taking early retirement because of the current situation here in the uk and with the pandemic there are still so many paths you can go down um it is a passport to all sorts of different things many of which help a lot of other other people so the medical career is something that is still popular and hopefully it will remain so
0: Yeah. And I love what you've said, because I think that when we're at school, we can get very bogged down with being like, what do you want to be? You've got to do this, this and this, because then after school, when actually the point that you've made is, is that you just embraced school and did what you loved. And it kind of made you a bit of the person that you wanted to be. And then you decided what to do. And I think that sometimes we can get a bit too, like, I want to be, you know, I've got to be an accountant or something. And then later in life, I have friends that are now like, you know, I've gone into law and now I'm like, well, actually, who do I want to be? And do you really think that kind of having that outlet of drama and the arts has kind of made you realise a bit more of the person, as you say, like you have humour and connections and everything like that?
1: For sure. Uh, um, You know, nobody knows what jobs entail when they leave school. I think very rarely do they really know what, what a job they have in mind is going to entail. And I think people become disillusioned. They go down a certain route and they think, I'm not really enjoying this. Um, and it's a tragedy if people don't enjoy the work they they, they do and the, what they're going to spend a lot of their life doing. It's important to love your work. And, and and work is a therapy if you've got the right balance and you're doing the thing that you love. Um, so I always always encourage people to explore what's possible and to, and to try and achieve that dream, don't be stuck in a, in a rut, thinking that that's where you're going to be for the rest of your life. Look around and, and see what you can you can achieve. I mean, I got the job on TV by writing a letter, um, which basically said, giss a job." Um, I had no no reason to expect any answer from this letter. I just wrote it and said, "Look, this is why I think I could offer you something." And you know, people should write more letters or, or emails.
0: Yeah I mean this is such a good segue into your third moment. So your third moment is writing a letter to TVAM to say give me a job and that was in 1989 and I really love the essence of the fact that you wrote a letter and as you say you expressed what you wanted to do so I wanted to ask what did make you write that letter because I'm guessing that TV doctors weren't a massive thing back then. Do you remember the moment that kind of triggered like I'm gonna do this?
1: I I'd, I'd actually been working um for a company that made educational videos for doctors. So so we we would actually um uh, film interviews about medical advances and and those educational films would would be distributed um to GPs. It's called narrowcast TV. So we we everyone knows what broadcast TV is, everyone can see it. Narrowcast is where um a small group of people can see um, education or other materials. So I, I was doing this, and I thought my my words. This is this is a really good way of of getting information out there. And when I watched um, uh, TV breakfast TV for the first time, I noticed that a lot of the medical stories were a bit turgid. They they were you know we were interviewing professors in their ivory towers, and they used a lot of jargon. And and I, and I said to myself, well, people won't understand what you mean. You know, you understand what you're talking about, but you're talking to the public here. Um, and as a GP, I try and forget medical language and talk in plain English. So I wrote this letter saying, you know, rather than use different professors every day, why don't you have a bog standard GP that sp- speaks plain English like me?
0: <laughs> and who did you write to? Like, How did you even find the person to connect with? Did you just like did you even have any connections to TV? Not, no,
1: not at all. I, I, I wrote to the, to the first station I thought of, which was TVAM. And, and luckily, the the uh, the MD was a, a really forward-thinking Austra- Australian guy called Bruce Gingell, who, who who didn't put people in pigeonholes. And he said, "I like this guy's letter. Let's let's meet him. Let's send him an invitation and meet him." So I went up to Camden Lock, and they said, um, "You know, we're going to try you out with the presenters for a couple of weeks and see how you go." And, and I was just myself. I, d- I just did what I did in a surgery. I wasn't phased by the cameras um and two weeks later they said uh, here's a contract Uh, and that was in in 1989
0: and do you remember your first day like did it just kind of not phase you and you just kind of went in there and did it
1: yeah absolutely so so i was sitting there with um, lorraine kelly and, and mike morris and uh um and the other presenters and um you know two weeks later I was sitting next to Charlton Heston, um, on the sofa. He was talking about, you know, entertainment and, and the dock the dock spot, as we called it, was right next to the entertainment. So I would sit next to Dudley Moore, Charlton Heston, Joe Rivers, Frank Bruno. It was an extraordinary um introduction to TV.
0: Incredible. And it's such as you said before, it's such a brilliant example. There is we should always just go for something, you know, even if it's a letter or an email that no one's going to read, you just do not know who's going to see it and where it's going to lead to. Um, and what's kind of been your proudest moment then over your years on TV?
1: Oh, I think um, <clears throat> that, that would include uh, some of the international uh, campaigns that I've been involved in. So going out to Haiti after the earthquake. Um, to to report on on the devastation there, going to Sierra Leone uh, to to give the first um, pneumococcal uh, vaccination um, to um, five year olds and, and and over, um, you know they, they were really proud moments um, and just getting letters from people saying that had we not watched the program we wouldn't have um, known that a lump in the breast was was significant or you know my husband's prostate disease might not have been discovered or my child might have died from meningitis had I not gotten to hospital in time and thanks to your program we realized what it was that they those moments make me very proud and and they also make me proud because it, it demonstrates a very useful um way of of using television for me television has become diluted by by entertainment and it's lost any educa well not any educational value but so much educational value and um, could still be there um if if we had more um more programs devoted to uh, the propagation of, of of good education but I, but i think it, it that's all diluted with too much mass entertainment we've got you know 400 channels we can watch and how many of them really um give us as much value as we would like i'd like to see
0: definitely and it's really incredible because if you think about it your kind of perception of wanting to go on TV and kind of be a more of a humanized person that can connect with people from the medical world was probably a really big snowball for kind of all the medical doctors that are on TV now. And as you say, have saved so many lives from making things accessible, explaining things in a way that people understand, one person watching one day, checking their breast and finding a lump. And, you know, I think you know, do you ever look back and think, yeah, I was really part of that revolution? Yeah,
1: I, I think the first TV doctor was was uh, was called Doctor Hill, uh, who worked in the Second World War for the BBC. He became chairman of the BBC, in fact. And uh, I, I got footage of him on Pathé News telling people what to do if they get flu while smoking his pipe. Um, oh my god! Kind of ironic. Times have changed, um, but but he was quite charismatic, and and he was one of the first. So, so then um I, I came along and, and yeah, you're right. We've we've now got lots of my good medical colleagues doing similar work and we all have this little collegiate group that we um we sh- we share together. And um yeah, we, we are giving people the information which empowers them um to take responsibility for their own health. So so the knowledge that medical men and women used to have, which was their province, and they they only shared a little bit at a time when they saw the patients in the surgery. Now that information is out there. We're making it accessible and available for people to say right now I understand I've got to go and do this um I've got to avail myself of the the treatments and the, and the, the tests that are available whereas before there was a there was a, a standoff between the, the patient and the doctor now I think it's kind of doctors a friendly face I can go and talk to the, to him or her about anything
0: yeah and it's so great and I think as well you've you've worked on live tv for most of your career what's kind of the worst thing that's ever happened to you live on air
1: oh I, um there, uh, nothing terrible. I don't think. Uh, I I I uh, I remember um, interviewing um, an elderly lady in her home, and we were talking about the you know the, the freezing cold and how hypothermia was a killer, and that a lot of elderly people who lived in in poverty should keep one room of their house warm um, uh, and make sure they have a thermos of of, of, of hot drink, hot soup or something. And halfway through the interview, the door opened and it was the milkman with delivering the milk. And, Excuse me, we're doing a live interview here. Oh, just dropping the milk off. Uh, but that happens on live TV. Um <laughs> and occasionally I've, I've I've made a mistake. I, I meant to say that a, um, a woman I was interviewing had a common um, condition, um, but I said I said she was common. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, but I don't I don't think there's been any uh, any terrible moments
0: really. No, well, you've got to have a couple, and I guess it's good that there haven't been any big ones. And do you ever think about where would you be now if you hadn't have written that letter? How different do you think your life would have been if it hadn't have had the kind of TV angle to it?
1: It, it would have been. It would have been very different. I think. Um, having said that, I think I would have pursued um, that ambition. Um, so if, if that letter hadn't been successful, I, I, I do think I'd have, uh, I'd have found a niche somewhere wh- where I could explore the things I wanted to do. Um, I was never going to be content with, um, just staying in one place, um, doing one thing. I, ne- I needed more, I certainly needed more creativity. Um, and, uh, and I was always going to be searching for that. So, I mean, my latest thing, my latest thing, uh, has been a, another tangent, um, which was writing a novel, um, and I and I thoroughly enjoyed that as well.
0: Yeah, and it's incredible, and it's it it definitely kind of draws on your medical experience. Your novel, doesn't it, Frontline?
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, so, so there's there's a lot of um, medical research in the book. It's actually the First World War, um, and um, it's a love story um, that is. Uh, that occurs between two young people, one who becomes a stretcher bearer um, uh, and, and the other is a nurse. Um, and it talks about the casualty clearing stations and, and, and the injuries inflicted during the war. It talks about poison gas. It, it talks about the Spanish flu of 1918. So there are also parallels between what's happening now and what happened then. So I called it frontline because, you know, we, we depend on frontline soldiers in war and frontline NHS staff in pandemics. Um, so there are lots of parallels and NHS frontline staff today talk about working in ITU and in AE is like working in a war zone. And, and that sort of triggered thoughts, which made me think this is this is where I think I could uh, uh, create a novel, which would be good to read. Lots of medical research and, and detail and a, an accurate military timeline as well, all encompassed in a love story. Uh, so it's not just about sort of death and destruction. It's also about... Um, uh naivety and innocence and love and romance and, and hope and optimism.
0: It is so incredible. I do not know how you found the time to write a novel, as well as everything else that you've done. But it's so brilliant. And again, it's another way that people can connect, not only to kind of the medical world, but also the stories of things that have happened in the past that are like going on in the world that we live in today.
1: Sure, sure. I, I mean, uh, the, the, the Great War was meant to be the war to end all wars, and it didn't. And um, what it did do, though, was it in, in, improved medical care. Um there's nothing like a war to to make medical advances. It seems extraordinary, but uh, you know, everything improved. So anesthesia got better, the treatment of burns and facial injuries and amputations got much better. Um, it had to, by necessity. So um, you know, that's all part of the book as well. And and um, you know. We, we you move on after these awful experiences and uh, hopefully we learn from them but sometimes you wonder if you really do
0: yeah it's so true and I'm just so glad that you wrote that letter which I'm sure many of our listeners are because yes you would still have been as you say in the profession but you wouldn't have helped so many people and I really hope you continue to have it such an everlasting tv career Oh, Hillary, thank you so much for joining me today. I've loved chatting to you. I've loved finding out all about kind of your life before being a doctor. And as I said, I think it gives a great message, as you said, to people that there are loads of different paths to take, lots of different ways to get into the medical industry. Um, And yeah, just thank you so much for being such a brilliant person in all our lives.
1: Well, Jenny, that's very kind of you. And, And before you go, there it is. but
0: amazing. <laughs> and it's out now there in all is. good
1: bookshops. If anyone's interested, I, I, I've had some really lovely comments about it. Um, so um, I'm proud of it. And uh, uh, and I shall probably write a sequel.
0: Amazing. There we go, a little exclusive. Thank you so much, Hilary.
1: Thanks, Jenny. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sliding Doors. If you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring, I would love it if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. Thank you so much.